Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today we'll be in Mark chapter 7 verses 1 through 8, which are located on page 491 and 492 of the blue Bibles, which are found on the back of the seats in front of you. If you do not have a Bible, please consider that Bible a gift to you from Northridge Life Church. Hear the word of the Lord. This is again Matthew 7 verses 1 through 8. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Thus says God's word. Join me in praying this morning. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you that everything that we need for life and godliness is found here. We thank you that the way of salvation is clearly marked out for us. In the word, we thank you that you have given us your commandments and they are not burdensome. So, Lord, we thank you for that. We pray that today that you would uncover and convict us of unbiblical biases and prejudices, Lord. That you would show us how we have strayed from the sincere milk of your word, O God, and clung and held and aggressively pursued traditions of men. And Lord, we pray that we would be gracious to one another and that, Lord, you would, as you reveal these things to us, Lord, show us just the fountain of life that exists in your word, O God. Draw us back again. Let us sit at the table And feast upon your word, not just in this moment, in these few minutes where we are together giving our attention to this text. But Lord, when we leave here and go home and throughout the week and through the difficulties of the work week and raising children and all the things that we are tasked with, Lord, help us to be constantly drawn back to your word. We thank you for the work that it's doing. Lord, I want to just ask you to just be with me today, Lord. God, I pray that the hand of the Lord would be upon me to keep me humble and, Lord, to keep me focused. And, Lord, to make sure that what you have written so clearly, as I said earlier, would be presented by me clearly. And without the defect that I would insert into it, Lord. And so, Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to speak to your people, your sheep, and point them to you and you only. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. Good to have you all here this morning. Um, We, uh, 
before, sometimes I'll kind of insert something I want you to know before uh, we get started. Some of you, if you got your paper bulletin or maybe you saw the slide, um, we have a great opportunity that I want to make you aware of. Uh, many of you know, most of you probably know that uh, Northridge Life Church is a part of the G- G3 Church Network. Um, we're aligned with several churches around the the, the uh nation that hold to the same uh, values and doctrines and and uh, practices that we do and a very unique opportunity that I had absolutely nothing to do with has, has fallen right in our lap. Um, Virgil Walker, who is is a, a director with G3, and um, uh, Daryl Harrison, who's with uh, uh, John MacArthur's ministry, they are going to be in town in October at Fellowship Church. And um, all of the information about how to how to sign up for that conference is in. Um, uh, is in the uh, the bulletin. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with Virgil Walker and Daryl Harrison, they have a, a, a podcast, really popular podcast, called J- the Just Thinking Podcast. And so we didn't take time to mention this last week, but this is in October. I think it's the 11th and 12th or 12th and 13th, something like that. It's in your, it's in your bulletin. And I just want to make sure that as many of you take advantage of that as possible. It's really, really, really inexpensive. Um, and I think it's like $15 a person. And so um, we'd love to have you uh, all be a part of that. Well, enough of that. Let's get let's get to the word. For those of you who are uh, new to Northridge Life, we are we are been we've been in a series in Mark for uh, most of this year, and we're continuing in that. We just cracked open um, chapter seven, and uh, this when we look at this this text, we realize that the people that were alive during the time of Jesus, when Jesus uh, made his appearance. This people, the Jewish people in particular, were asking a lot of questions. And, and some of those questions were things like, um, what will the Messiah be like when he arrives? They were asking, could this teacher that has showed up in Galilee, is, is this possibly the one? Is this the Messiah? They asked, when he comes, will he deliver us from the oppression of Rome? Will we, uh, that we're under authority right now? Would he restore religious piety to the, to the Jewish people? And these were questions that they had a lot. But Jesus had told his disciples earlier in the book of Mark, he told them that the answers to the real questions, that were behind all of those questions, the answers to the real questions were mysteries and they were secrets that were reserved only for the ones whom God had foreordained to know the truth, to those who would come to Christ in repentance and faith. So we get to this text today, and, and, and the text that we're going to examine highlights a similar question, and this question is as old as religion itself. It dates back to the fall in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. Every race of humanity in every time period has asked this question. And more than that, they have proposed answers to this question. But this text doesn't just tell us what the question is, even indirectly. It also pinpoints for us this fact that the answer that all of these people over all of history, that have the answers that they have come to to try to answer this question, how can I be acceptable to God, have been consistently wrong. The humanity has never come up with the right answer to that question on its own. 
See, we all, the reason we I want to know this question, the answer to this question, how can I be acceptable to God, is for this very reason. We all have an intuitive understanding that we're polluted. We all have an intuitive understanding that we need to be cleansed. Romans 1 tells us that the very witness of nature, the earth and the sky, convinces us that there is someone greater, someone out there that is bigger than us, to whom we must give account. But that's not all that Romans says. Romans 1 also tells us, though every one of us is afflicted with a conscience that gives us further an innate sense of right and wrong. And so you might wonder if we all have this innate sense of right and wrong, why is it that there's so much wrong? Well, Paul goes on to say that we suppress the truth. Meaning we press it down, we put it in a place where we can conveniently ignore it, we suppress the truth in our unrighteousness because the most harsh fact of this is that we don't just need to be delivered from the uncleanness of this world, we ourselves are a very product of it. We're a product of the very fallen world about which we have so many unanswered questions. But Jesus was made manifest to us. He, he appeared to make the truth plain to everyone who has the ears to hear and the heart to respond. So today, what I want to see is how our human-made solutions to our problems and our questions always collide with revealed heavenly truth. So we'll see how these Earthly prescriptions inevitably lead to accusations of defilement. What do I mean by that? I mean, when we try to figure out how to be clean, all we get is a response from everything around us that we are more dirty. And it leads to these accusations of defilement, not only then, but even when there's no basis for such. And then we'll... See the vanity, the emptiness of all man-made attempts at self-cleansing. And we'll see how all of this leads to religious pride and an assault on genuine truth, genuine wisdom, and even an assault on God's own perfection. And we'll finish by seeing how Christ, glory to God, redirects our empty recipes for self-righteousness and our futile attempts by uttering four simple words. As it is is written. Now last week, we mentioned how John says uh, that the feeding of the 5,000, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, marked a transition in the ministry of Jesus in Galilee. He, he tells us that the crowds that have been pressing Jesus since, his, since Mark's gospel began, that they dispersed for the most part after that miracle. Mark tells us that his ministry in Gennesaret, where he landed after the feeding of the 5,000 and walking on the waves, he said that it was mostly attended by mere miracle seekers, not truth seekers. 
Now, as chapter 7 begins, Mark tells us that the Jewish authorities have traveled the approximate 80 miles from the capital of Jerusalem to the region of Galilee where Jesus was ministering to investigate all that they had been hearing about Jesus' miracles and his teaching. And this was not the first trip that these guys had made north to Galilee. You may remember, we talked about this in Mark chapter 3, verse 22. It says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. They came to see Jesus, and in their Jewish prejudices gave him two thumbs down. That was the opinion of the Jewish leaders who came to see him at that time in chapter 3. So we can see from their earlier trip that they had not made a positive assessment of Jesus. His increasing popularity, however, between chapters 3 and 7, his increasing popularity with the people had to be frustrating to them. And they came with the intention of finding fault with him. And what they were looking for, they found quickly in the most unlikely of places. Verse 2 of chapter 7 says, They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, It's clear from the text, like I said, that they'd come with their eyes peeled for the slightest infraction in order to accuse the disciples. And it wasn't just about accusing the disciples. By extension, their real goal was to accuse Jesus and to discredit him. Now, there's this issue of the disciples were eating lunch and they had not washed their hands. Now, some of you might have a very visceral reaction to that reality. You think, I'm with the Pharisees on this one. If you go to someone's house, you might notice if your host, who is serving you dinner, has failed to wash their hands, that might be something you take note of. You might be mildly shocked. You might even be slightly disgusted. But what you need to see is that the Pharisees were not put off at all by a lapse in common sense hygiene on the part of the disciples. That had nothing to do with it. They were offended by the lack of adherence to a religious ceremonial standard. See, their goal in wanting the the Pharisee or the disciples to wash their hands was not physical hygiene, but it was it was ritual purity. And Mark will make that clear as we go on. The Pharisees saw their unwashed hands and immediately condemned them as being defiled. Now, if your child's been playing outside, you will, and they come inside and you know, they've really done it right and they're dirty like a child should be. You don't say, son, go take a bath. You're defiled. You say you're dirty. So see, they're raising this to a spiritual issue, not just a, they don't say, hey, there's these things called germs. You should probably wash your hands. They say you are spiritually impure. Now think about the other things in the book of Mark alone that, that the Bible calls unclean. It calls spirits unclean. It calls the woman with the issue of blood for 12 years. It calls her unclean. 
And so the Pharisees are categorically putting the disciples eating with unwashed hands in the exact same category as these other unclean things. That was the problem. They condemn them as being defiled. They're saying you're ceremonially unclean before God himself. They made a spiritual assessment. They assessed their spirits based on their neglect of a ritual observance. In other words, because the disciples failed in one of their many answers to the question of how a man becomes acceptable to God, the Pharisees made an accusation of defilement. And let me let you in on a little secret. If you're new to Christianity, if you're kicking the tires on Christianity, all earthly religion does this. All earthly religion will always accuse you of being defiled. It will always say, you're not good enough. Slaughter a goat. You're not good enough. Pray on your knees. You're not good enough. Say 17 Hail Marys. It always makes an accusation of defilement. Whether it's Catholics insisting on confession or the, ma- or the mass or Mormons performing proxy baptisms for the dead or insisting on sacred underwear. All human and therefore false religion sets up systems and ceremonies to deal with human guilt before the unknown God whom we fear in the dark. That's the nature of religion. Even atheism. Atheism, oh, we don't have any need for religion. Bull, atheism is a religion. It has all the earmarks of religion. And what atheism does in the same vein, it denies that there's any need for any method of spiritual cleansing. So that's their religion. And people who hold the other view that we do have a God, a personal God to whom we're accountable, they they call them defiled because of their belief, not because of their unbelief. And so everybody outside of Christ has a system. And, and whatever the system is, you're going to somehow fall short of it. When new methods of being clean are put forth, It's also done in order for those who put forth the methods to maintain power over the ones who adhere and to dominate those who do not adhere. See, the Pharisees saw the disciples' unwashed hands, and when they saw those dirty hands holding sandwiches, they felt a sense of superiority over them. Why, we would never. And they felt that they had insight into deep spiritual mysteries of washing your hands. Deep deep insights into spiritual mysteries that these blue-collar fishermen could never get. See, religious tradition, just religious tradition, Dave talked about the Reformation, religious tradition can be at the very root of war. At the root of division, at the root of any kind of lack of compassion. And it's all based on the fact that one feels like he's pleasing God, while the other simply cannot be pleasing God, as long as they ignore the other one's approach and conviction. And these rituals are how the Pharisees maintained that a person must be made pure. If you dare eat a Cheeto with your hands unwashed, 
then you cannot be pure. But in sharp contrast stands the Bible, which teaches that a person, listen to me, can never be clean before God. Despite all of their rigorous efforts, compared to God's holiness, man's most perfect offering is filth. It's an offense. It is dung. And there's nothing we can do about it. Now, I've been pretty hard on these Pharisees. It's important to recognize that these Pharisees were not just running a scam to simply maintain power. They were sincere in their efforts, albeit wrong, they were sincere. This is how Mark puts it in verse 3. He says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash There are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. See, the tradition of the elders mentioned here required dedication. It required tedious adherence. It says that they were holding to the tradition of the elders. And this word in the Greek implies aggressive and unyielding devotion to a set of rules and regulations and standards. It says that they would not eat unless they washed their hands properly. You guys remember when COVID started and they always told us to sing happy birthday while we washed our hands? This is not what it's talking about, okay? It's not talking about soap coverage. It means that there was a strict ceremonial technique that must be maintained. They were to wash up to their elbows according to the rabbinical teachings before they ate the smallest little morsel at all. And Mark goes on to tell us that these washings included their cups, their pots, their tea kettles, their tables, their chairs, everything must be meticulously purified before it can be enjoyed and used for the purpose for which it was created. Everything had to be scrubbed and scoured and cleansed. As I was reading this, (coughs) I think that there's an interesting contrast between the Pharisees' emphasis on washing and eating and the teaching of Jesus. You might find it interesting that the, the word used for the Pharisees' washing in this passage is baptizo, which is where we get the, the, the word for baptism, meaning to wash, to bathe, to cleanse, to immerse, or to even overwhelm. When the Pharisees would return from mingling in the public, when they went to the marketplace, when they were out in the public arenas, they would not just wash their hands, but they would come in and they would take a bath to get all of the corruption of the outside world. What kind of corruption? Corruption from Gentiles that might have been in the marketplace. Corruption from ceremonially unclean Jews that might have been in the marketplace. Maybe somebody had a dog or some other ceremonially unclean thing in the marketplace and they had to to wash it off of them. And this was their attempt to cleanse themselves. Now this is similar to the way Anabaptist movements throughout history have approached the outside world. They often 
choose to live completely segregated from the world, like the Amish do or other Mennonite sects. In, in reality, many Christians, we can't just say, oh, those silly Amish riding their horses and, you know, using no electricity. What I want you to see, because this that wouldn't matter if we were just throwing rocks at Amish people in this message. What I want you to see is that many Christians take the same approach when it comes to engaging the culture. This idea of just, oh, i got to stay away from that. Don't want to get dirty with that. Their motivation to avoid certain people, certain places, certain activities is not personal holiness or the true fear of the Lord. It's to uphold a standard as they see it, of spotless perfection in order to be counted righteous. And maybe even more before their peers than before a holy God. Their standard by which they live is the teaching of a certain church, or worse, uh, the cultural application of a moral value to things that in themselves are neither moral nor immoral but are really just matters of Christian liberty. How did Jesus feel about this approach to our lives? He said this in his prayer to the Father the night before he was crucified, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. See, Jesus is saying that being in the world does not make you subject to the evil one. He's not telling us to leave the world. He's praying that the Lord, by his grace, would keep us from the evil one. The Pharisees' problem was that they only saw pollution out there. They saw it all around them. But they never saw corruption that resided in their own filthy hearts. See, vain religious ritual, no matter what kind of Christian language you attach to it, vain religious ritual is the worst kind of idolatry. Because it says, if I do this, I will get that. If I perform in this way, I will get that result. So they would baptize themselves. They would baptize their stuff. But the baptism of the legalist tries to purge contamination by thorough, anxious washings, religious observances, proud condemnation of others. But the baptism Christ prescribes for us joyfully announces that we have done nothing to cleanse ourselves. Because our old self, everything in it, everything about it from the very core is dead in sin. And it's worthy only to be buried. And our raising from the waters represents Christ's cleansing of us, not of our own working. The Pharisees' mistake was to keep from the table until they were washed properly and kept spotless, never realizing 
that they were still utterly polluted. Jesus says this later on in Matthew. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. By comparison, you know, these people had to clean up, make sure they were spotless before they even approached the table. But by comparison, the only people that are allowed here at Christ's table are the sinners. The filthy, the rotten, not the self-righteous, the got it all together, the washed properly. Those are welcomed who have given up on washing their hands or their hearts and have left all of that work to the Spirit of Christ alone, who, applying the blood of Jesus, scours us clean, both on the inside and on the outside. That's who's welcome at the table. Paul says, this is a gift of God, so that none of us can boast of our cleansing work. None of us can obligate others to our self-originating cleaning methods. We have to be made clean, but we can only be made clean by a power greater than us that comes from far above us. Whenever people become convicted of some self-contrived religious method, their accusations of defilement will turn quickly to an assault on real truth, real holiness. Their offense, the, the, the Pharisees' offense at the disciples' negligence becomes an interrogation of Jesus. They wanted to get Jesus into the little light, you know, like in, the, in the, all the TV shows. And they say, Jesus... Why have your disciples abandoned the established teaching of the church? Why are they not doing what the fathers have told us to do for generations? One of the surest evidences of legalism is people who, uh, 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 you know, issue themselves a license to inspect the walk of other Christians based only on extra-biblical standards that they want to apply. See, they, they didn't come to Jesus with a question to discover how Jesus might wisely answer them, something they didn't understand. See, it was a direct assault on Jesus himself. The quality of a rabbi's teaching was seen in the impact on the lives of those he taught. If Jesus' pupils had the audacity not even to prioritize the teaching of the fathers, then Jesus himself has to be promoting rebellion or error or ignorance. See, they'd come looking for grounds to accuse Christ. And they prove with this assault on his truth, this assault on his holiness, they prove that they have no clue who he really was. They have no clue what he had come to accomplish. They have no clue the dire consequences of ignoring his message. They have 
missed the verification of his holiness and uniqueness that his signs were providing for them. Instead, they pointed their fingers at him and they accused Jesus of being a lawbreaker. Well, here's the kicker. Here's the catch. The offense of the disciples was not based on any law or commandment of God whatsoever. None. It is true that the Levitical law that Moses wrote does contain certain, or does require rather, certain washings, but mostly therefore priests as they offer sacrifices to God. But none of these washings that the Pharisees were up in a tizzy about, none of them, were required at any place that Moses wrote. These washings came from the halakha, which is a, 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 a collection of oral traditions that the rabbis had been preserving. And see, after the Babylonian captivity, the rabbis that were zealous to avoid the idolatry that put them in captivity began to add wider and wider safeguards to the law of God. Soon their traditions to try to protect people from breaking the law of God, their traditions became equal and were accepted as equal to the law of God by the time Jesus showed up on the scene in the first century. But again, this is not limited to the first century. It's something that all believers, I'm guessing, struggle with. Religious people still do it today. It's why Catholics will only eat fish on Fridays during Lent. Because they just want to make sure that they don't get too close to the line for something that's not commanded. It's why good Baptists only use grape juice in communion. We've constructed safeguards that God never intended to keep us from excess. But shouldn't we rather, I'm asking you, shouldn't we rather know God's actual standard? Isn't that better? Somebody? With just a handful of words, Jesus made clear to these professional religious burden distributors that he didn't concern himself with all the supposed weight of their traditions at all. In fact, he commended them to the prophet Isaiah, who Jesus said, Hey guys, newsflash, Isaiah was prophesying about you. He was talking about you. And he says these four powerful words that cut through all the fog of ritual, all the fog of tradition, all the fog of ceremony. He said this, As It is written. He said, we don't have to guess. We don't have to figure this out. We don't have to shore up what the teaching of the word is because it's already been given to us as it is written. These words comprise how Jesus... And his disciples should discover truth and find out what the actual obligations of God's law are. Pastor David mentioned the battle cry of the Protestant Reformation against the elevation of church tradition by the Roman Catholics in the Middle Ages was sola scriptura. 
Scripture alone, which means Scripture alone will be our guide. Sadly today, sadly today, if we were to establish a cry for modern Christianity that was honest, it would be, have to be traditionis solum, traditions alone. Or perhaps we could go with tantum nominatio, denomination alone. Or worse yet, cultus solus, culture alone. But Christ, just like he did the Pharisees, would rebuke us unhesitatingly with these words, as it is written. As people throughout all times and all circumstances ask Jesus about this cultural shift or that denominational standard or this family tradition, he draws us back to the scriptures and he says, as it is written, what will your guideline be? For such a departure from the source of truth, Jesus calls the Pharisees hypocrites. Now, many of you have probably heard that the Greek word for hypocrites, hypocrites, means an actor wearing a mask. Someone who is duplicitous and pretending to be something they're not. But a secondary meaning of that word is just as telling. It means one who answers or an interpreter. The sin of these men, these Pharisees, was deeper than just mere duplicity. I've had the privilege several times in my life, few times in my life, to preach in foreign countries. And since I only speak English, I've had to use interpreters so that my audience could understand what I was saying. Now, imagine this scenario. What if my interpreter, as I was preaching, chose to preach an entirely different message than the one that I was delivering? I wouldn't have known it at all. But if I'm preaching biblical truth and and the interpreter decides to go a completely different direction, what damage could be done by that? What misrepresentation of my intent could have been accomplished? See, the, the scribes and the Pharisees were Israel's teachers. They were tasked with teaching God's commands. But instead, while he was speaking clearly through his word, they were inserting their own words. And Mark says all Israel did this hand-washing thing. They had hurt Israel by changing, by misinterpreting the words that God had spoke. Jesus quoting Isaiah tells the Pharisees, this is about you guys. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Louis Burkhoff says that the heart is the seat of all true religion. A religion cannot be confined to our brain. It it can't be only exercised through our will or, or expressed through our emotions. But it has to spring from the central part of our whole person, our heart or it can never be considered genuine. Jesus says the same thing using this quotation from Isaiah. He says that those whose lips 
you know, worship them, but, but their hearts are far from them. He says that their worship is in vain. To be vain means that it's empty, it's futile, it's meaningless. They gain nothing eternal at all from their religious practice. See, they, they love the shadows that were represented by outward ritual instead of the substance that was perfectly revealed in Christ Jesus. Worse than that, Matthew Henry says, instead of providing the substance, they presumptuously added to the ceremony. They not only failed to give the people Jesus, but they just stacked on to the ceremony. They made the shadows deeper and darker to keep people from Christ. Jesus, again in Matthew 23, expresses it like this. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So Jesus began this with an accusation, but now Jesus accuses his accusers. And he tells them that they've abandoned the commandment of God, ignoring what he actually requires, while they cling with whitened knuckles to the traditions of men. Again, Matthew Henry calls this the mischief of impositions. So here's where we've boiled down to. You might look at me and say, so what? Why does this even matter? Because here's my question for you. When you stand before God, and most assuredly you will stand before God, will you try to wrap yourself in a warm cloak of traditions kept, of cleansing, attempted, denominations revered, only to find that it was a mere spider's web that couldn't cover your nakedness? Or when you stand before his unveiled holiness and you hear his thundering voice ask you, Why should I admit you into my presence? Will you be able to look him, look to him and say, As it is written, whoever believes in the Son shall not perish, but have eternal life. I have staked all my hopes on a righteousness not my own. I am clean only by his blood, and I am made one with him by faith. I hope that all of us here can give him that answer because it's the only thing that's going to matter in that day. Would you stand with me? Lord, thank you for the opportunity to deliver your word to your people. I pray that Jesus, as you're the sower and you've scattered the seed, I pray with some it would take root. I pray that you would find good soil present here that can produce a harvest 30, 60, 100 fold. God, I pray that 
we would carefully examine ourselves and abandon all worldly traditions in which we boast, all religious traditions in which we boast, all vain processes that we have embraced to think that we have made ourselves clean before you, I pray that we would shed them this very day and leave them on the ash heap, Lord, and that we would be cleansed and clothed and made holy and made righteous by you and you alone, God. Do your work in us, Jesus. God, draw us back to the purity and the simplicity of your word and not the frailty of our own human interpretations of it. For this we give you thanks. Amen. have our communion assistants come to the table we are going to receive from the Lord's table. And I want to uh, encourage you um, to uh, just as you consider the things that we spoke about today, um, to just ask what the source of your cleansing is. And if you've never put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you know, you know if you have, Look at your life and, and see what the fruit of it is. If it if there is the fruit of growth and sanctification, then you can confidently come uh, having uh, having put your trust in Christ and partake. And if there's not, if you're if you're just stuck, then then let's fix that first. Let's fix that, and then and then we can we can talk. But uh, we're not trying to just simply for the sake of uh, of lacking hospitality, restrain, restrict you from the table. But the Bible says that if you take it in an unworthy manner, that you actually eat and drink condemnation on yourself. Don't double up your condition before God by partaking of something of which you are not worthy. Let's talk. Meet me after the service and let's talk if, the, if you're in that category. For the rest of you, we want you to come and joyously partake of these elements or, or receive these elements, take them back to your, your seat, and we will receive them together uh, after, after we've all uh, gotten our elements. So you guys are free to come now and we'll do that. Mark records the Last Supper of Jesus, where he instituted the Lord's Supper like this. He says, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. Let's take the bread together. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's take the cup together. Now let's pray and give thanks to God. Lord, we thank you for the treasure of your great sacrifice. Lord, we are clean not because of a ritual or a ceremony or hand washing, Lord, but we are clean because you've made us clean. You have washed us in the blood of Jesus. And we stand before you with a clean conscience, purified by your holiness and your sacrifice. 
And for this, we give you thanks. Draw us back again and again to the truth of your covenant, the power of your cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would, place your hands in a receiving position. I want to speak this benediction over you. From John eight thirty one. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, you're dismissed.